Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. The generosity of listeners like you allows us to offer ministry programming designed to reach people around the world. If you'd like to partner with us in an ongoing way or by giving a one-time gift, please visit our website, newlifecs.net, and click on Give. There you'll find information to give online, by text message, or by mail. Thank you, and enjoy the following message. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-7 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is God's word. You may be seated. About 18 months ago, I mentioned one of my favorite podcasts that I started listening to. It's called How I Built This. It's on NPR, and uh, it's hosted by Guy Raz. And Guy Raz interviews entrepreneurs who have built successful companies. Some of them were built 50, 60 years ago or more, uh, and others were just built a few months ago. But all of them are very successful. And one of the questions that he asks in almost every one of these interviews is, how much of your success do you attribute to intelligence and hard work? And how much of your success do you attribute to luck? The responses are varied and interesting. Jim Cook, who founded Sam Adams Brewery, said, Guy, I'll take the luck. In all humility, a lot of it was luck. Kendra Scott, who founded Kendra Scott Jewelry, said, There's no luck. I don't really believe in luck. This has been very hard. But Reed Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn, took a different approach. And here's how he answered the question. The answer is just massive quantities of both luck and work. Now, the truth is, Jim Cook worked very hard to establish Sam Adams Brewery. When he started that, American beer was a joke. But he built that great company over years of hard work. It wasn't all luck. And of course, with Kendra Scott, I don't doubt that she worked extremely hard. But at the same time, if she had not been born in America, and had she not been afforded the opportunities that she had because of her networks and because of doors that were open to her, she wouldn't have been able to do what she did either. So the reality is that Reed Hoffman is right. To start a successful company, it requires hard work and it requires luck or what Christians would call the providence of God. Well, friends, today we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to be talking about the requirements of faithful discipleship. And one question that we have to answer with respect to faithful discipleship is, how are disciples made? Are they made through hard work alone? Are they made through God's grace alone? 
Or is there some combination of those two things that's involved? And I think what will become clear as we read the passage together is that faithful discipleship requires hard work empowered by God's grace. So let's take a look now at the text together here in verse 1. Paul opens this section and says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, as we've talked about many times during the course of our study of the pastoral epistles, Timothy was probably not a naturally strong leader. And the truth is, Paul was not going to be around very much longer. And so Timothy, in order to do what God had called him to do, was going to need strength outside himself. After Moses died, there was a very similar situation. Joshua was going to be following the greatest leader in Israel's history. And he must have been terrified to try to fill those shoes that Moses was leaving behind. But look at what God says to Joshua in chapter 1. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So God comes to this young man who's going to be taking over for Israel's greatest leader, and he tells him, you can be strong and courageous because I won't leave you or forsake you. Notice those, those dual charges there. Joshua is to be strong and courageous. That's on him. But he can be strong and courageous because God will never leave him or forsake him. And similarly, Paul urges Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. On his own, Timothy was inadequate for ministry. But by the grace of God, Timothy had everything that he needed to do the work that God called him to do. And friends, in the same way, we often feel inadequate for the work of ministry that God has called us to do, especially the work of making disciples of Jesus. Isn't it true that we think to ourselves things like, you know, I haven't been a Christian long enough to make another disciple. I don't know enough. I haven't taken enough classes. I haven't had enough experience. We think all of those kinds of things. But friends, the grace of God is sufficient for us. We just talked about in chapter 1 that we are saved by grace, not by works, not because of anything that we have done, but through what Jesus accomplished through his sinless life and death and resurrection. And the reality is if God's grace is strong enough to save us from sin and its consequences, then God's grace is certainly strong enough to empower us to do the work that he has called us to do. And so Timothy should be strengthened by the grace of God. And he should be strengthened by the grace of God for the hard work of faithful discipleship. Look at verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Well, as we learn in the book of Acts, Jesus appeared to Paul when he was on the road to Damascus and he called him to repent and to trust in him, to follow him. And then Jesus entrusted Paul with the message of the gospel, specifically to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. 
And so Paul did that, and Paul passed that same gospel on to Timothy through his preaching and through his example. Through his example, he shows how to live a life that is informed by the gospel, that's characterized by holiness and sacrifice and love for others. He lives all of this out publicly in front of Timothy, but in front of all the other believers. And now Paul is taking that next step and he's saying, Jesus entrusted this to me. I am entrusting this to you and you are to entrust it to others. But who are these others? We learn a couple of things about them. First, they must be faithful men. So in other words, these are to be 1 Timothy 3 men of character. They're to be above reproach, faithful to their wives, sober, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, gentle. They're to have a good reputation with outsiders. These men can't be drunkards, violent or quarrelsome, greedy for gain. They can't have been recent converts or they may become puffed up with conceit and fall into a snare of the devil. They have to be faithful men. So Paul doesn't say, you know, entrust what I've entrusted to you to anybody and everybody, but to faithful men. But then notice what he says. He says, faithful men who will be able to teach others also. They have to be able to teach. See, character is necessary. It doesn't matter how good of a teacher you are if you aren't above reproach, if you aren't an example for others to follow. But Paul is not merely telling Timothy, I want you to look for mature Christians. He's saying, I want you to look for mature Christians who possess the God-given ability to teach. That is to explain and apply the word of God where others understand it and can apply it to their lives. They grow in knowledge and understanding. They grow in their obedience from listening to these men. So in summary, Paul is commanding Timothy to entrust the gospel to elder qualified men who will commend the gospel through their teaching and through their lives. Now, why is that so important? Why does Paul seem so concerned with who Timothy entrusts the gospel to, especially if he is going away? Well, friends, the answer is that, as we learned in 1 Timothy, elders are setting the example for what Christians believe and how Christians should live their lives. Look on the screen at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And of course, Peter agrees with this as well. Look at 1 Peter 5. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see again and again that elders are called to set an example for other Christians to follow in terms of what to believe and how to live their lives. Understand, elders or elder-qualified men, they're not super-Christians. 
They're simply mature Christians who are setting an example for others to follow. And so what does this have to do with discipleship as a whole? Well, ask yourself this question. If you have a church that's filled with these kinds of men who are preaching and teaching the biblical gospel and who are setting an example for the church to follow in holiness and sacrifice and love and obedience, what is that going to do for the church? Well, friends, the answer is what many refer to as spiritual multiplication. In mathematical terms, it's known as exponential growth. Now, I want you to think for a minute. Let's say that you decided that you were going to share your faith for two hours a day for an entire year. And at the end of a year of sharing your faith for two hours every single day, you saw 100 people profess faith in Christ. And let's say you did that for 30 consecutive years and God brought the same harvest every single year. 100 people a year professed faith in Christ. At the end of 30 years, you would see 3,000 people profess faith in Christ. That's remarkable. It would be remarkable to me if I saw 3,000 people profess faith in Christ as a result of my evangelism. Now, what if instead you said this year... I'm going to disciple two new Christians and I'm going to teach them to be disciple-making disciples where they will turn around and each disciple two new Christians. Well, friends, after 30 years, you wouldn't have 3,000 converts. You would have over 1 billion disciples. 1 billion. That is truly remarkable. And that's the difference between addition and multiplication. And all of that comes about because you simply trained two new Christians to become disciple-making disciples. Do you see why Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words and put such a strong emphasis on entrusting the gospel to faithful men who would be able to teach others also? It's because of this principle of spiritual multiplication It's because when we are doing this, when we are all from the top down, so to speak, entrusting the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also and faithful women who will be able to teach others also, then you have this product of spiritual multiplication where we're not merely adding to our numbers year after year, but we're seeing them grow exponentially. It doesn't require less time, but it requires investing our time in a different way. Instead of spending our time only sharing our faith and seeing people make professions, we are sharing our faith and then discipling new converts to become disciple-making disciples. And in this next section of Scripture, we'll see just how much of a spiritual investment and how much of a time investment that spiritual multiplication requires. It requires very hard work empowered by God's grace. Look again now at verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. 
And so we see in this section, Paul is comparing the faithful disciple maker to the work of the soldier and the athlete and the farmer. Every one of those vocations helps us to understand the work of discipleship more clearly. And so we want to take those each in turn. First, Timothy is to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, why would Timothy be suffering for making disciples? Well, as we know, inside the church, Timothy had to contend with false teachers who were opposed to what he was preaching. And as we've mentioned a few times in this series, he also had to contend with people inside of the church who were genuine believers, but just had a hard time submitting to his leadership because he was so young and so inexperienced. And so he was going to suffer inside the church. But outside the church, of course, Timothy is calling people to repent of their idolatry, to repent of worshiping any God besides the one true God, including Caesar. And as a result of preaching that truth, he and his fellow believers in Ephesus are facing jail time. Some are even facing execution. And so Paul reminds him, Timothy, you are a soldier who enlisted in the army of Jesus. So share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You see, friends, when a soldier enlists in the army, he understands what he's signing up for. He understands that the life of a soldier is one of hardship and sacrifice. He understands that there is a high likelihood that he may be sent off to war And if he is sent off to war, there's a high likelihood that he could be wounded or killed. His friends, his brothers in arms could be wounded or killed. Some of them may even defect to the enemy. But when he enlists, he understands all of these things are possible, if not probable. And so he he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he adds this, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. It's critical for the soldier to stay focused on his objective. And his objective is winning the war. Now, Paul is not arguing for what some know as a sacred secular divide. He's not saying that some things are spiritual and those things are good. And some things are unspiritual and those things are bad. And so we should only focus on that which is spiritual or so-called spiritual. I want you to remember what he says back in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Look on the screen. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So I think this passage has been misapplied in many contexts and what we get from it a lot of the time is I shouldn't be doing anything that is not spiritual in nature. If my life isn't 100% evangelism, 100% discipleship, then I'm missing the mark. But you have to remember, and if you've seen any movie about war, if you've seen any of the great series like Band of Brothers, you know, even if you've never served before, that even a soldier, a faithful soldier, is not always on the front line. Even faithful soldiers come back from the front line for rest and rejuvenation. They play sports, they read, 
They get to go out into the community wherever they're staying. Those things they do so that they can be more focused, more rested, more ready for the critical and important work of winning the war. And so Paul is not saying that 100% of our life should be evangelism and discipleship. He's saying what? Don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Don't get entangled in them. So it's great if you love to make crafts, if you love to play golf, if you love to go camping, if you love to play video games, whatever your thing is, that's fine. Just don't get entangled in it. Don't let it become so much of your life that you have become distracted from your primary calling as a soldier of Christ Jesus. Our lives are to be about the work of evangelism and discipleship. And so if those civilian pursuits are pulling us away too often from that primary work, then we've got to reevaluate our priorities. Good soldiers make disciple-making disciples. They don't get entangled. So that's the first analogy that he uses, that of the good soldier. But then second, look at what he says. Timothy is to compete according to the rules as an athlete. He's to compete according to the rules as an athlete. Now, as we all know, either from experience or from watching athletes, athletes train very hard in order to win the prize. They work all the time, especially at the highest levels. It's about not just how they practice, but what they eat and when they sleep and how much they sleep. All of those things year-round are critical to the athlete's success. They train very hard. But the athlete also understands that all of the training in the world does not matter if they break the rules. And nobody understands this better than the United States Sprint Relay Team. Since 2008, that team, who has some of the greatest athletes our country has ever seen, has been disqualified six times for illegal baton passes, most recently at the 2016 Rio Games. They didn't do it on purpose. They weren't trying to cheat by passing the baton earlier or by holding on to it late. They didn't mean to drop the baton back in 2008, but that's what's happened. And as a result, in their last 14 or 15 competitions, they've been disqualified six times. And in almost every one of those races, they were going to win or place but they ended up in last because they broke the rules. Paul reminds us an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And in the same way, if we want the crown of life and if we want others to have the crown of life, we have to be obedient to Jesus in every way. Look at how Paul expands this analogy in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others... I myself should be disqualified. 
This is a warning not so much to the people that Timothy is going to be preaching to as it is to Timothy himself. It's a warning to us. As disciples who are trying to make disciples, we have to compete according to the rules. We've got to continue to obey Christ, particularly by obeying the gospel. Not wavering from our hope and our trust in Jesus' sinless life, death, and resurrection for our salvation. And so we can work as hard as an Olympic athlete to make disciples. But if we don't compete according to the rules, if we don't follow the commands of Christ, it will all be for nothing. And then finally, Paul says that Timothy must labor at disciple making like a hard working farmer. He has to labor at disciple making like a hard working farmer. Now, like soldiers and athletes, farmers, of course, work very hard. The difference with the farmer's work, though, is that he works very hard for a very long time and sees nothing. If you're a soldier and you're working hard and doing your job, you see progress. The, the line of combat is moving forward. Towns and villages are taken and secured. If you're an athlete, you can see your muscle mass increasing. You can see your times dropping as a result of your hard work. But the farmer doesn't see those things. After they cultivate the soil, they've got to plant seeds and water them. They've got to continually pull up weeds. Once the plants finally begin to grow, they've got to keep pests and animals away from them. They have to protect them while they're growing. And all the while, there's no produce there's nothing to show for all these months of hard work. It's only after doing the same thing day after day, week after week, month after month, that the hardworking farmer can expect to see a harvest. And in the very same way, making disciples who can make disciples is a very slow process. And in a culture that's obsessed with speed and shortcuts and life hacks, it's really no wonder that faithful discipleship has fallen on such hard times. It's because it's such a slow process that doesn't yield results immediately. And so friends, we like the hardworking farmer have to commit to the slow process of making disciples. And if we do that, we will expect to be the first to enjoy a share of the crops. We'll get to see people coming to faith in Christ and then see people grow up in Christ to be disciple-making disciples themselves. Remember, spiritual multiplication is very slow at first. 100 a year sounds a lot better than two. But in the long run, it yields a much greater result. It requires hard work. And it requires confidence in the grace of God, especially the confidence that if we do what God has commanded, he's going to bless our efforts in disciple-making. So let's turn now to this final charge to Timothy that we see in verse 7. Paul says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Well, of course, every Christian should want spiritual understanding. According to Paul, we must understand two complementary truths about how to get that spiritual understanding. 
And the first truth is that spiritual understanding comes from God. Spiritual understanding comes from God. You see, Christianity is different from nearly every one of the major world religions in a very particular way. And that is, Christianity was not conceived by one man who wrote down his thoughts in a very short period of time, like Buddhism or Islam or Mormonism. But rather, Christianity is based on the revelation of God, which came to over 40 authors who lived on three different continents over a period of more than 1,500 years. It's an entirely different thing. You see, apart from God's revelation, we wouldn't know the truth about God or about ourselves or about salvation. Christianity is a religion of revelation. Now, other religions would claim to be religions of revelation as well. It's not like Joseph Smith does not claim revelation or that the prophet Muhammad did not claim revelation. Of course they did. It's that the nature of the revelation was so different that we have all of these different authors, all of the span of time, all of these different geographic areas, and yet one consistent message. How would people living in different times and different cultures come up with this one consistent message? Even if you visit different parts of the world today, we're all alive at the exact same time. And there is by no means agreement on one consistent message in terms of worldview or anything else. And yet this is exactly what we find in Scripture. And friends, what this means for us is that spiritual understanding will not come from hard work and study alone. It doesn't come from hard work and study alone because if God doesn't open our ears and open our eyes, then we will not understand spiritual truth because all spiritual truth is revealed to us by God himself. Many men and women through the years have read the Bible, but they've read the Bible without the eyes and the ears of faith that come from God. And as a result, they've walked away without understanding spiritual truth. So the first thing we need to understand is that spiritual understanding comes from God. But second, spiritual understanding comes from meditating on the word of God. Spiritual understanding comes from meditating on the word of God. That is to say, it comes through the hard work of thinking on it. Now, that second truth doesn't contradict the first because as we know from scripture, God works through means. That's how he works. Yes, there are times in scripture where something miraculous has happened and God has not worked through means. He has simply revealed himself directly or he has done, himself, uh, he has done something directly. But in nearly every single case, God works through means. So for example, Scripture affirms that it is God who sends the rain. But how does God send the rain? He does it by means of the water cycle. Scripture affirms that God provides and cares for all of our needs. But we know that one of the primary ways that God does that is through our parents and through our employers, and through people who care for us. Scripture affirms that God ordained the death of Jesus for our salvation. But we also know that he worked through the Jews, and through Herod, and through Pontius Pilate to achieve 
that desired end. You see, friends, God works through means. And what that means is that we gain spiritual understanding, not by sitting back and hoping that God miraculously gives it to us, but rather through working hard to think on and meditate on the Word of God. You see, the problem for some of us is that we don't really study the Word of God at all. We don't have anything resembling a consistent devotional life. We attend worship infrequently. We just don't really study the Word of God at all. But the problem for a lot of us is that we don't really study the Word of God either, even though we're hearing it basically every day of the week. I want you to think about this for a minute. Especially in our community, this is probably truer than most other places in our country. In our community, you can go to worship on Sunday and hear a sermon. You might also be able to go to a class in the morning or in the evening. On Monday, you can go to a Bible study. On Tuesday, you can go to breakaway. On Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, you can go to life group. On Thursday, you can go to another study. And then any time on the week or on the weekend, you can listen to as many sermon podcasts as you want to listen to. And all of that is on top of our private devotional lives. So friends, a lot of us are hearing the word of God every day, if not multiple times a day, but we're not thinking over it. We're not meditating on it. We're not considering it. Look at what James says in chapter 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, friends, we're deceiving ourselves if we think that hearing the word of God is going to change our lives. We have to think on it and then act on it. The very best thing for some of us is to quit doing many of the Christian things that we're doing. I know that sounds crazy to some of you, but yes, a pastor is standing in front of you advocating that you do less Christian stuff, that you go to less Bible studies, that you listen to fewer sermons, and instead spend your time meditating on the Word of God in a few sermons or a few studies each week. Spend your time thinking over them and discussing them with other Christians and considering what would it look like to actually put this into practice in my life. Our problem, especially in College Station, is that we have so many good preachers, so many good teachers, so many great campus organizations, so many wonderful Bible studies, and we're all sitting in them and listening to the truth and nodding and saying, I agree with all of that. And we're doing very little of it. It would be far better for all of us if we heard the word less, but we meditated on it and thought over it and applied it more in our lives. So Paul tells Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You see, our calling as Christians is to make disciples to make followers of Jesus who are equipped to make more followers of Jesus. And discipleship, faithful discipleship, is really hard work. 
And I think it's probably the case that some of you are listening to the sermon today and you realize, you know, I've professed faith in Christ for years, but I've never been faithful to my calling to make disciples who can make disciples. Well, friends, if that's the case, God is calling you today to do the work of a Christian, which is the hard work of discipleship. You say, Alan, I don't know where to start. Well, let me encourage you to go straight to the bookstall after worship and pick up this book called Cultivate. The subtitle is, and I quote, Get Equipped, Make Disciples. I trust that was straightforward. Pick up one of those booklets and read through it. We, we developed that so that if you are a newer Christian or if you've been a Christian for decades and you've never been faithful to the work of making disciples, you can read a short booklet that will say, here's how you get started. Here's how you get started. Second, let me, let me encourage you to head to the Connect booth and then say, I want to get involved in a life group. How do I do that? Because it's in a life group that you'll be put into a community of people who all are desiring together to be faithful in the work of disciple making. Where you can be put around other Christians who are saying, I don't have this figured out. My life has been characterized by fits and starts and everything else, but I'm trying to be faithful. I want to be faithful. And you'll be encouraged and equipped to be a disciple-making disciple in those groups. And so if you're one of those people that just hasn't gotten started, you can start today. But I think there's others here, and that's a lot of you in this room, who have been faithful to make disciples for years. Perhaps you've devoted yourself to the work of spiritual multiplication, and if that's the case, praise God. But I want you to remember that Faithful discipleship is not merely the result of your hard work. It's your hard work that's empowered by the grace of God. You can work hard sharing your faith, training new Christians, meeting with different people many times a week, but apart from the grace of God, we won't see any results. We want to work hard, and I want to continue to encourage you to work hard. But we have to remember that faithful discipleship requires hard work empowered by God's grace. Let's pray.